You know, you'd be surprised, you know, just because someone's been in the business for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, it does not mean that they have experience. It, it just, it could mean that they've been doing the same thing for 20 years, meaning the same thing every year for 20 years. There's, there's been like very little technical growth. And, and I've seen that, which is actually rather bizarre where you have someone who's been in the business forever, but can't, can't underwrite a deal. Can't get behind the spreadsheet to save, save their lives. Do not understand the financial concepts. Most transaction brokers, I would actually tell you, they don't understand capital markets. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into the Fort. I have a friend of mine, Ari Firuzabadi, the founder and CEO of Graysteel on with me today. Graysteel is one of the fastest growing service providers across the country. Ari brings a great perspective to not only real estate, but the entrepreneurship story and journey. So enjoy. All right, man. Well, I am excited to have you on the show today. Um, I've actually worked with your business and it's been fun to watch it grow. Um, I want to just kind of start by talking about what life was before Graysteel and then how Graysteel came to be. So that's kind of a loaded question, but we'll start there. Graysteel has been around for uh, just under eight years. Prior to Graysteel, uh, I was with a, a national, what is I guess now a publicly traded brokerage company, and I was their, uh, I was their DC office leader. I, I was a top producer within that firm. Um, and that company's name is Marcus Melchap. I, I joined the, the firm as a young lad right out of college. So I, I have, uh, I've never, I've never had a uh, traditional nine to five job where I, I, I wouldn't say that as an as an adult, I've not had a traditional nine to five job where I clocked in, clocked out, and collected a paycheck. My last nine to five, if you want to call it that, was when I, I was a lifeguard in college, which was a great job. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've been in this same business vertical or industry uh, for the last 15, uh, almost 16 years. So you're, you're based in DC. You, you're at Marcus Millchap, which is highly regarded as one of the, it probably is the largest investment sales or at least pure play investment sales shop in the country. Is that right? That's what they, that's what they claim. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> not for long though. Yeah. Not for long. Not for long. We'll see. So what made you want to basically leave there and start Graysteel, which shares a lot of similar characteristics to how Marcus is built? So I, I would say we we offer comparable services, um, but but the foundation is fundamentally different. So, you know, both both companies uh, do uh, investment sales. We both do. We both handle uh, senior loan and structured finance transactions. Um, we, we also provide JV equity, uh, placement solutions. And then we have a, uh, we have an auctions division where we'll auction off, you know, distressed real estate on behalf of trustees, uh, for bankruptcy related matters or foreclosure auctions. So, so I would say that, um, you know, the, why did I leave? I left because, um, you know, I, I was there for, you know, seven ish years. Uh, I had a great run with them. I was a top broker nationally. Uh, I produced a lot of revenue, but their business model, in my view, you know, is very challenging um, in a sense that they they uh, they compete their transaction professionals against one another. So if, if you're there in Dallas, you know, between Dallas and Fort Worth, they may have, you know, five teams of right. brokers that that uh, that that, you know, that don't share information with one another and, and compete against one another for business. So, that, you know, you may have two or three. Marcus and Millichap teams at the table for any engagement. And then you'll have, you know, a company like ours, uh, a CDRE and HFF and a, and a Transwestern, you know, so you'll get one team from each one of those companies and then three from Marcus. 
And so I thought to myself, golly, this makes no sense. You know, yep. we should be working together. We should be sharing information uh, to the benefit of the client. And, and we should be competing with those uh, outside the house, not inside the house. Now, they claim to share information within the context of like a database um, that they put their inventory into, but, you know, they, they don't really have a lot of incentive to work with one another. I mean, they, they want to collect 100% of the fee themselves. Uh, so, so it's, I think fundamentally their, their model is strong for George Marcus and, you know, they've been very successful in replenishing their talent pool as the talent has moved on. Um, but it wasn't a place that I wanted to stay at for my career because, you know, I, I find, I, I found it difficult. Uh, I was, you know, I was there, I was, a, I was the top producer in Washington, uh, in kind of in this region for, you know, the majority of my career there, I, after my second or third year, I was a top broker in in their office and I was a top broker nationally for them, but I, I felt like I was at the top of a hill. So, you know, you know, my, my, my neighbors, my, my, my colleagues, you know, really weren't too happy with me because, you know, they were my competitors at the same time. So culturally I found it very challenging. And so I, I decided to start Grayscale because I thought we could do it better. And at the time, uh, you know, cloud technology or, you know, what the cloud was, was new. Um, you know, uh, people used to have servers in their offices and, you know, filing cabinets. And we said, you know, what, we're going to build a We're going to build a platform, hundred percent cloud-based, which we did, uh, two, we're going to, uh, create a central CRM, which is our point of entry into our system. And that point of entry is going to, uh, enable all of our professionals access to data, uh, and, and relationships and needs of investors and, and capital markets, which we did. And we're going to build it. I was going to build it for myself. I mean, Kimberly, that's what I did. I, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it for me because I want to continue in this line of work, you know, and, and I attained success and people just started showing up. And, and as, as people started showing up, we, we picked up some groups and they found success on the platform and it kind of just grew organically. We never put a sign out saying, you know, until recently, you know, we're looking for talent. The talent really just came to us. Right. And we've been successful in, delivering you know a platform and a process that enables you know enables their you know individual professional growth i would say that's the primary difference between us and where i came from you know i would say culturally we're significantly different right you know and then and the fact that we you know in fact do share you know resources we, we also have a central shared resource um platform where we we have a centralized marketing group we have a centralized um research group we have a centralized it management group um, so we have all these different functions that tend to be repeated in each office and many of our competitor firms, we, we are, we have, we have a centralized in the sense that it's a shared resource. They may not all be in the same actual location, but the work goes into call it the funnel right. and then the funnel, uh, sorts it and then executes it. Ah, love so it. that's how we, that's how we've been able to scale because, you know, if we were, you know, some of our offices aren't very big they're, they're they may be only comprised of, you know, three to four people, uh, a big office to us is, you know, I would say between Dallas and DC. I mean, we have anywhere between 20 to 30 people in each one of those offices, but as we enter into a market, we, we enter and then, and then, you know, we look to scale, uh, with a market leader. Oh, I have like a thousand questions I just wrote down. Um, I love it. And, and we did something and I don't know exactly how y'all promote teamwork, um, and break the traditional model. I think you're so right that a lot of these brokerages, although they have everybody's on the same team, it's almost like everybody's a, a competition. I think commercial brokerage is notorious for kind of stabbing in the back amongst team members. And so love to hear y'all have done that. We, you know, we buy real estate at Fort Capital and they're similar. We don't have brokers, but we have acquisition guys and we used to compensate people based on the deals that they brought in. And then there was kind of a rule that if you brought it in, but you worked on it with somebody else that you, you know, you shared. And what we realized really quickly was that uh, it just like promotes people wanting to be more isolated and not share as much when you could think that you're, you know, paying others. And so we totally redid our whole compensation system that promotes teamwork. And so just because somebody brings in a deal doesn't mean the rest of the team won't get paid and vice versa. And it's totally changed the motivation behind people. Because if one acquisition guy gets a deal and his partner is getting paid and then he gets another deal and his partner got paid, it's almost this built-in incentive system that that partner wants to you know, get them back. And 
it's been huge. It's changed us culturally. And I love to hear that that's what, what y'all are doing. Is, is there anything you can speak to that allows y'all to be different than everybody? Or is that kind of proprietary? No, I can speak to it. So I, I think going back to how do you avoid uh, competition internally? I think for us, I mean, we have a, we have a sales, we're, we have a Salesforce based CRM platform that we continue to innovate. And I can talk a little bit about that later, but um, you know, we track all telephone calls to uh, contacts we track all emails to contacts. And so it, it would be very difficult for, for someone to come in and, and lift the deal, if you will, from, from, um, uh, from someone internally. I mean, one, we don't, we don't bring in competing brokers to, to cover a territory product type practice group or specialty. But, right. but even if we did, it would, be, it, would be, it would almost be impossible uh, to do because the data is, the data is all captured. So you right. know, if you saw you know, Adam talking to you, um, you know, last week, it's highly unlikely that, you know, another broker would call you, you know, and have a similar conversation where I think you might get that at some of the other firms. Um, yeah, I would also say that we team build. So we, we have, we have a, a model for team building. So we, we, we penetrate with a market leader and then we, we help that market leader attain scale through team building. So, you know, each one of our markets, you know, we, we usually have a market leader or market leaders, um, who, who, uh, kind of run a, you know, a diversified team of professionals. Uh, so our kind of our head of office is our, our, our lead producer and that lead producer really sets, helps us reinforce the culture and helps us set the tempo within the marketplace. Yep. Our, our compensation model, you know, we, we track, we, we don't, not, we, you know, we, we track origination credits. So we origination credits and compensation are bifurcated. Right. Um, uh, so he or she who brings the deal in gets the origination credit per, perhaps, but that doesn't necessarily mean they collect the commensurate fee. Right. Uh, the fee can be, you know, depending on the practice, you know, in certain areas, what we might do is we, we may do like a trailing average where we would say, okay, let's look at the origination credits for this practice group over a trailing period of time. It enables a young professional earn up and an older professional who's slowing down to earn out. Allowing like a gradual transition, right. uh, which I think is a, a healthy way uh, to to grow a business and allow young people to grow up, and then you know not not really chop the you know cut the feet out from under you know a seasoned professional who may be slowing down. So we have like a number of different ways we approach cooperation matter. Um, now, if if we do have a conflict, and we've fortunately never had a conflict uh, that that has that has, ha- has had to go there, but we have an arbitration committee. Right. Uh, that's comprised of people within, you know, the corporate team that are non-revenue folks. Right. Uh, that really are all here to. They're all there. You know, they're all on the platform to support the revenue folks. Right. Um, they they administer the arbitration, and and the uh, the loser has to has to pay for it. And then there's a you know kind of a, a shake hands clause at the end of it that you know the loser has to take out the winner and kind of make right. Um, fortunately, we haven't had to use it, but but we have a number of different mechanisms in place. Uh, to reinforce, you know, the culture that we're looking to, you know, preserve and grow. I love it. Um, taking a couple steps back, when you left Marcus, how long and how long and t- like did you spend uh, building the software and the the company that you were about to launch, Grace Deal? It was. It was a. I, I just so I when I left Marcus, I, I left with a. Um, I had a separation agreement with them for all intents and purposes. It was a, it was a divorce decree. We, we negotiated and, 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 and entailed a pipeline of deals. Right. And so I had a, I had a couple million dollar pipeline uh, of top line revenue on the table with them um, that, that I left with them. And we agreed wow. to share uh, those fees in accordance with that schedule. And I, you know, we agreed that I would work those deals to conclusion. Um, and it was a very, very robust um, pipeline. So, I, I never, I never actually, so because I was at M&M and I, I had built my own business within M&M, I own my own, I own, I own my own softwares. I, I own my own uh, databases and computers. I, I had, uh, I compensated my, my staff personally. I had a business within a business. I've been, a, I've been a 1099 uh, independent contractor since the age of, you know, whatever, 21, 22. So yeah. uh, it, for me, it was, it was just like lights on. So I just essentially pulled out. I was just like sitting you know, under their flag, I pulled out and started anew. And um, anew was really not anew because I had a robust business that that 
continued. So I, I would right. say there was really no downtime. I moved over and, and onto my own, under my own flag and, and I kept going. And so we had a very, you know, very strong first year. Uh, the only hiccup was, um, and it's fairly public and I'll, I'll let the, I'll let the kind of the, the Google search speak for itself. They decided that they wanted to pursue me uh, under the pretext of bullshit lawsuit um, to, I, you know, and hmm. the judge, the judge uh, verbatim said their intent was to ruin me. I mean, they wanted to, they sued me under the pretext that I committed fraud and conversion. That's at least what they announced in the press release in order to frankly slow me down and ruin my reputation. So that, that happened around six months into, into launch, which is a very uh, challenging experience, which I, I successfully defended. I, I, uh, let's talk about sued. that. That's huge. Yeah, we, yeah, we can. Well, like I'm yeah. more, more like how you handled it, not the situation itself, but that for a lot of people might be like looking into the pits of hell and it didn't seem to slow you down or at least. Well, it was, it was tough, right? So I, I would say, you know, um, two, a couple things. One, they sued me. I countersued them. Judge dismissed all their claims. I won all my claims, summary judgment. Judge sanctioned them for spoliation, which was a, which which means uh, destruction uh, of evidence. And then we we settled. Uh, I settled my claims vis a vis mediation at the judge's suggestion to them that they should go to mediation because he was not going to be kind to them. And uh, and then they issued a, a public uh, apology. And so so that was kind of the, the global settlement, and, and there was a monetary aspect to it as well, of course. Yep. Um, but, but as I was going through it, I mean, it was pretty challenging, right? I was at the time I was 20, I think 28 or 29. Uh, I just had my, uh, I, we just had our first child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I go out on my own and then these guys come with a headshot. So if they just sued me, that, I think I'd been fine, but, but simultaneously suing me, like literally the, the moment they sued me, they issued a press release that they sued me. Wow. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was a complete headshot and, and, you know, I would, speculate to say that they did it because George Marcus was trying to take the company public and, and perhaps he wanted to send a message internally, which is what, you know, their internal documents showed during discovery. But, um, but anyway, so how did I deal with it? I dealt with it by putting my head down and working. I, you know, I, I you know, at times I felt a little zombie-ish candidly because, uh, cause I was going through these things that I, I, I did not want to bring my family down. I didn't want to bring my friends down. Or I certainly didn't want to bring, uh, the people that were around me that were relying on me down. So I kind of, I, I held it. Yeah. Uh, I held it in. Whether that's a good thing or bad thing, I, I certainly held it in, and I just worked my way out of it. You know, I, it was a very expensive endeavor. I mean, you know, I forget what the legal fees were off the top of my head, but you know, they're I think they were cresting, you know, seven figures. I mean, yeah. it was it was a big it was a it was a big deal. Uh, I think if I hadn't saved the money that I had made, you know, if I'd have been a young kid who made the kind of money that I made and went and spent it on cars and jewelry and God knows what else. I think I'd have been in pretty big trouble. It would, it would have completely collapsed me because I don't think I would have been able to withstand the uh, the legal assault, uh, oh. which which you know, which was like you know I don't know I forget what it was like forty depositions and you know hundreds of thousands of pages of uh, of documents turned over in discovery, and so you know I I, I kind of I, I I chewed on it and I ate it. Uh, a guy that has been with me for you know I'd say twelve years. One thing he said to me, you know I don't know. A handful of years ago, you know, and it was it was a couple of years after the matter had passed. He said, "I could never tell that it bothered you a bit." He's like, "You kept it moving, and you, you know, you, you did not show any, you not show any weakness, and you not show any, uh, you know, there's no frailty in you." Yeah. And and so I think, you know, as a leader, I think you should you should certainly show vulnerability uh, at times, and then at other times, you know, it's important not to. And in that time, I, I didn't show any vulnerability, I, I, at least not externally. But to myself, I mean, I sat in my bed at times thinking, you know, what the fuck did I do? You know, like, <laughs> what, what did I do to deserve this? You know, I, I made them a bunch of money. I was a good corporate citizen. I just hated their culture. I even went to them and said, let's change it. And on the eve of my departure, they came back and said, okay, fine, we'll change it. We'll beta this model that you want to do, which essentially be the, the office leader and be the be the player coach. We'll do it with you. And at that point, I had said, it's too late. and you know, six months later, they decided they, they didn't want me to go. And so they came back and tried, they claimed that I verbally agreed that I wouldn't compete with them. So they, they, they alleged a verbal non-compete, uh, and, which was bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. I fucking love you, man. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was quite an experience. I think that is one of the most underrated things about a CEO that nobody understands is that will and that 
grit to keep it together when it seems like it's falling apart and not having many people to turn to besides maybe a couple people within the company or your wife or somebody really close to you, but keeping that all bottled in and you know continuing to push on. I think it's one of the most underrated skills on the planet, and it sounds like um, that's probably why you're sitting where you are. Where you are. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I think there's, I'm not sure it's hundred percent healthy to do, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not remember, saying it was, is. Yeah. I just, I just, that's the way I handled it. My dad, you said to me later on as well. He's like, he's like, I wish we, we'd have known what was going on. We could have helped you. And I looked at him and I said, how the fuck are you going to help me? No, yeah. no disrespect. Like, how could you help me? Yeah. Why, why, why would I bring you down? You know, I want, you know, I'm not looking to take life away from you all. I, you know, it's it fortunately worked out. I mean, if, if, you know, as you know, in litigation, you may not know, I mean, you know, God forbid you've been in litigation, it's a terrible experience. It can go in any direction. I mean, you're, you're at, you know, you, you know, you're at the, you're in the hands of the courts and, you know, it's it sometimes, sometimes it's a crapshoot. Even if you're in the right, it's a crapshoot. Fortunately, I was in the right and, and the court saw it and handed their ass to him. What is a, a young guy that has saved money and has, enough money to pay for a lawsuit for a certain, like what advice were you given really early on that kind of prepared you for, you know, going up against Goliath? Was it hire the best so, attorney so they, possible no, or? Yeah, it was, it was, well, the advice early on was settle it. They said to me, uh, when they came, they said, go to them and we'll go to them. We'll settle it. It's who not said worth that to it. you. My, my lawyer, my counsel did. They said, who cares if you're right? right. Who gives a shit? There's no, there's, there's no, um, there's no, you don't, you won't win here. Even if you win, you won't win the because it'll cost money. you time and money and anguish. Yeah. And you should be focused on what you do. You should not be focused on this. Yeah. And so we did, we went to them and said, okay, what makes this go away? And, and they, you know, and, and, and they said, essentially they said really nothing. They said, you, you have to give us your, all of your revenue that's here. And then you have to give us all of the revenue that your company has currently signed up. <laughs> Um, and, and if you do that, then, then we will, then we won't pursue you, which is essentially they want me to walk away from millions and millions of dollars in revenue. And I'm like, you can't do that. Right. So it was, it was really a fuck you. And, and so their suggestion was settle it. I, 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 and I tried to, I I had no choice, but to defend myself. Like I, I, if I had a choice, I would have, I would have paid them a few hundred grand to go away. So if your advice to somebody that might be in a similar situation or headed towards one would be try and settle it before going to war. If you're not prepared for it, right? right. If, if you're not, if that's not what you do. I mean, today I'm, 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 I'm battle tested. So I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> fearful, but as a, you know, as a younger man who's never done it before, who, who, you know, was like all on the line. Yeah. I would say, you know, I would say, make it go away. Uh, today, you know, I think, you know, I think again, I'm, I'm not in the business of litigation, uh, but I certainly have uh, different capabilities and, and a different perspective. So I, I would, you know, I think it depends on, you know, who I'm answering that question to and where they are in their life and business cycle, but how, all in all litigation is no fun. How did you find the attorney that you used? Uh, we interviewed, we interviewed a handful of attorneys, um, we? I mean, the, the, uh, myself, I had a, I had a, a business partner who's actually their old general counsel. Right. Um, and he and I, uh, he and I interviewed a half dozen, uh, half dozen lawyers. Um, and we chose the lawyer that we chose, uh, one because, um, he was a, the, the preeminent lawyer in this, in the County in which the litigation was brought. It was brought in Montgomery County, Maryland. Right. And so we chose a, a, a very high quality uh, lawyer that, you know, Harvard educated, uh, bat, you know, uh, litigator who yeah. was like a preeminent attorney. This guy could, he's building, I don't know what his bill, billable is today, but let's just say he's, he's built, he bills four fifty an hour, but if you were downtown, he'd be billing a thousand, right? You know, or if you were in New York, you'd be billing 1500. Yeah. So you get the, you get a high quality lawyer who is a litigator by trade and understands complex litigation matters to, to represent you, that's that's a local, you know, hometown, home team uh, type lawyer. So they came in with out of town folks, and I came in with an in town guy, um, and I think that that certainly helped our cause because he could speak to the court. Right. I won't take that one much further, but that is that's fascinating and that's super valuable uh, information. 
you said something that you became the top producer in Washington, D.C. Again, if I'm young and I'm just getting out of school or I'm just entering the industry, what does it take to become a top producer? Like, what does somebody have to go through and, and the time that it takes? So I, 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 um, I, I did not come from within the industry. Um, I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was five. I, I, you know, my, my parents are, you know, they, they did fine for themselves, but they weren't commercial real estate investors. So my point of reference was my own. It was, I, I took a, uh, um, I took a finance course in college. I studied, I, I graduated from undergrad with a, with a double major in finance and marketing and Me within too. the context of my, oh, you did? Yeah. Finance oh, cool. and marketing. Uh, that's, that's cool. Um, so I, I would say that's really what I do for a living or Grace Deal is, is a, it, it's the confluence of, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, we sell businesses and all, all for all intents and purposes, right. you know, a, a, an apartment complex or a shopping center is a business. Yep. And so, um, and so I took a, uh, I took a course and within the context of that course, there, there was a, there was a case study on a, on a commercial real estate company and I, I cruised the internet and I, I found, I found a handful of them. And, and the only one that said that I could start and that I could make a million bucks a year was Eminem. It was like, they, they boiler room me. If you, yeah. you know, that movie, <laughs> that 100% boiler room me. And, um, but it was fine. It worked out. So I, I think what, what, what did, what did I do? I mean, dude, I started, uh, I started, my career there, uh, you know, right out of college and, and candidly, like I, the first week I got there, they ignored me completely. They put me in a room and ignored me. I think they ignored me for a good month. My problem was that I'd already told all my friends and family that I got this fancy job downtown working for this commercial real estate company. And I told them how successful people were. And I, I really couldn't quit because if I, if I would go home and quit, you know, I, I, you know, they look at me like you're a failure, like you're a quitter. So I, um, I had to persevere. I, uh, I work seven days a week. I, I, I really cut, uh, I really cut my social life out in entirety. Um, I committed myself to, to my, my business. Cause I, I said, I, I really have, you know, I really have a, a period of time in which I can apply to this. And if I do in fact fail after I try my hardest, that's fine. Um, I can recover financially, but I'm going to give it my all. And so I cut my social life out in entirety and I, and I work seven days a week. And I worked seven days a week for like the longest time. And I was mm-hmm. super regimented in my approach. I'd, I'd get in super early in the morning. I'd work until super late at night. I'd avoid traffic on both ends. I'd work Saturdays and Sundays. And I did that because I, you know, one, I found it interesting. Um, you know, I, I consumed a lot of information. And, and two, I, I, I was pretty good at it, right? I, I could, you know, I, I could speak to people and I've got a good memory and, um, you know, I could follow the math. And, and so I taught myself the math. I, I, I taught myself the streets and then I, and I, I read the history. So I read like 10 years of history and sales comps in the markets that I was working in. So when I showed up to a meeting as a 23 year old kid, you know, I could talk about what happened in, you know, 1995, you know, and they're looking at me like, how, how do you know, like, how do you know that guy from 1995? I'm like, it's my business now. Mm-hmm. And so I overcame the youth concern with, with knowledge and, and so, I don't know. That's what I did. I, I just worked my ass off. Did somebody like tell you to do all that stuff? Did you have a mentor there? Or did, it just came naturally to you that like, this is what the best guys in the business are doing. I'm just going to get there quicker. So that's it. I, I looked around and I, I, I looked at what the best guys, I, I looked at what the best guys in the business were doing. I didn't have a, I didn't have a specific mentor, but there were a couple of folks in that local office that were fairly successful at the time. And so when I found something interesting, I bring them into my business and, and we would share the revenue associated with that engagement. And so I was, I was all for uh, chopping my deals up so that I could learn, you know, the best traits from the folks that I thought were the best quickly. Did I realize that these people, most of them don't know what they're doing and that I was bringing folks in and what they were telling me to do is like figure it out on my own. And so what it forced me to do was figure it out on my own. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of what I did. And yeah, I was, look, I, I studied, I studied the business of the business and then I, and I studied the, you know, the markets. What was your first deal? Oh, it's, I, so my first engagement was a yeah. 37 unit apartment house, uh, in, in Northwest Washington, DC. And they have a weird, uh, we have a weird law in the district called Topa where the tenants have the right to purchase the property as a, as a collective they form an organization. They have this right and that right can stagnate a transaction for call it 400 days. Yep. And so I, I, I get this engagement. I put it <laughs> under contract. 
I just probably like six months in, I get the engagement, put it under contract, like eight months, you know, seven, eight months in. And I think it's going to close within my month, 10 or 11, but the, uh, but the tenants form. So that, that deal doesn't close for another year. And so that was my first listing. And that was, you know, to me, you know, I think that deal is called like a $4 million deal that I would have made, you know, I was splitting, I would have made like 60 grand on one transaction. That was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money, a lot of people. Yep. And, um, and so that was my first, that was my first listing. My first closing though was uh, two. So I did both retail and multifamily transactions yep. uh, on the investment sales side at the time. But there were two storefronts uh, on a street called 14th Street in Northwest DC, which is a very vibrant, hot, hip, you know, street now where all the restaurants and bars are. Uh, at the time, it wasn't. I sold it to a guy that I met, an Ethiopian guy. His family, um, his family has the. Uh, it was Eritrean actually, but his family has the largest bread baking business which if you've ever had ethiopian food it's in jiro bread yeah in ethiopia they they came to the table with 1.1 million in cash to buy the property which i thought was like it was like cash you know it was like (laughs) 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 it was uh it was wild so that was my first closing but my first engagement was the latter what are those properties worth today Oh, uh the 37 units is probably worth i would i would venture to say somewhere between Probably like, you know, eight and 12 million bucks, probably. Ah, and it sold for four? Yeah, like it was like 3.7 or four. It was like probably 100 a unit at the time. Yeah. Uh, and at that time, it was a crazy price because it was at the peak of the market uh, and everything was going condo. So that was based on a condo conversion valuation, not on a rental valuation. Yeah. Today, the asset's worth more on a rental valuation than it is on a conversion basis. So it, it kind of the markets have shifted a bit, as you know. Yeah. Um, and, and then the thing on 14th Street, oh, it's probably worth... I mean, I would probably say that 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 street retail is appreciated the most. I, my my guess is with the right tenant, you know, it could be worth, I don't know, eight to ten million bucks with the right tenant. With non credit tenant, probably four to six. I love Ethiopian bread, and I'm pumped for that dude that bought it from you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, they did great, man. I mean, like at the time, you could have bought almost you know you could have bought almost anything yeah. anywhere in the country and and did fine as long as as long as you could carry it through the recession. Um, you know, with, with, you know, asset, asset prices, you know, there's been asset price inflation uh, yep. over the last, you know, decade and a half. Okay. So one of the things that just as a, as a, as an outsider and having worked with y'all on multiple transactions in the past that I've just kept an eye on is the expansion that y'all have created across uh, the U S I, I wrote down that y'all have 13 offices across the USA. I guess my first question it's really two questions. One is how do you think about going into a new market, which you kind of answered with the market leader, but more like how do you find them and how do you set up shop? And then two, how do you get culture from Washington, D.C. to call it Fort Worth if some of the people that are, if all the people that are working in the Fort Worth office have never been in the Washington, D.C. office? Good question. So how do we choose a market? I, I think I, we can operate anywhere in the country. I could be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We can be in Boise, Idaho. It doesn't really matter where we are because there's always a need for a service like this. Yep. And and so it, it starts and ends with the people. Yep. Um, and we have we have a strategic map, but but at the end of the day, you know, if we don't find um, a market leader that we we believe in and we like, um, then we're not going to go there. Um, right. Just you know, so that I would say it's it's. We have a strategic map, and then we all, we also you know we also look at the professionals, and and again it's it's a combination of us being proactive, uh, and and sourcing uh, talent, and then reactive and and hearing folks that visit with us. And so right. we we launched, for example, last year, um, or yeah, it was about six months ago, I would say, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we have a market leader there that is you know is is a tremendously talented guy. He approached us. He's He's, he's a really nice man. He, he's, he's humble. He's honest. He's earnest. Um, and he fits within the context of our culture. And now we're in the process of scaling that business. We, we penetrated the market. We're transacting in North Carolina and South Carolina with them. And, and I would say that's a, that's a good, that's an example of a good addition where, you know, that, that person came to us and we reacted to the opportunity. Right. Um, that's part one. And then part two is how do you, how do you get the culture we, we have uh, we have principles and standards and we create principles and standards boards. So in each one of our office locations, when you walk in, you see, you, you have these, like you, you see this message permeating through the office. 
Um, and, and I would say that in concert with that, we, we have, everyone has, you know, everyone, we, we provide, um, we provide all the hardware and stuff that folks use. Uh, everyone has a, you know, you have a monitor and usually there's a screensaver on monitors, right? That could be a picture of your dog or with us, what we do is we, we channel messages, um, basically, uh, the cloud to every screen in the country. So whether it's a monitor on, in our conference room or a monitor on someone's desk, or their laptop, when they open it up and it's sitting idle, there's a flickering, they're flickering images that speak to the, speak to the culture of the company, highlight our successes, highlight awards and announcements, highlight best practices. Um, we run contests and other things to promote performance. And there's this like continuous message flow um, that they see daily, no matter where they are, uh, whenever they're using an electronic device or behind an electronic device in any office in the country we have a uh, each each transaction professional is assigned a transaction coordinator uh that coordinator helps them uh implement and execute their engagements no matter the engagement it can be investment sale structure finance deal or jv equity placement as an example and and they are there to reinforce the culture so the culture really is we i look at it and say we have two sets of clients at grace so i do right, right. one one client my internal my internal transaction professional is my client and, and the people that are here to serve and support uh, the transaction professionals view them as their internal client. If the internal client's not a net promoter of, of our services, they're not going to, they're not going to stay and and they're not, and they're certainly not going to help us grow. And so their main objective or our main objective is to ensure the satisfaction of our internal client. If they're satisfied, then they're delivering at the highest level to our external client. Yep. And so it's it's delivering, you know, having the mindset that we are here to work for these people uh, so that they can go out and work for our clients. You know, and I would also add that we do an annual internal conference, which is a really high quality bespoke conference that we host out in Vegas. We do it, we did it this past year at the Four Seasons, which is, which is very nice. We, we essentially cover... The entire thing uh, we bring out on the front end of it, we fly out the high performers and their you know top producers and their uh, spouses, and we do a, like a really high quality weekend trip. And then, and then from like Sunday to Wednesday or Tuesday night, we have our internal conference, um, which is a fairly rigorous best practices conference that that people participate in uh, throughout the country. To you know, we promote you know we promote our culture. It allows us time to get together, um, and then enables us to really uh, share what we see, what we're seeing throughout the country and what we're seeing and doing best. And a culmination of those things um, really helps us, you know, bind the culture together. I love it, man. But Andrew Mueller, who I work a bunch with, I think got an award at this past conference or or some retreat that y'all did. I saw it on LinkedIn. That's right. Yeah, they were, they got the, um, so he's an emerging leader. Uh, So we have, you know, we have like President's Club and we have emerging leaders. He's an emerging leader. He, you know, Andrew's, Andrew's, I've seen Andrew grow, you know, into a man. I mean, I must say he wasn't a man before, but yep. I mean, he was a younger man and he's now a, you know, a seasoned high quality, um, professional, you know, yep. and, and I'm really proud of Andrew. So it, yeah, he, he was, he's in our emerging leaders group. He sits on the steering committee. So we have a steering committee, which is the voice of the transaction professionals where we have, you know, our, our top, uh, our top three emerging leaders and then our top three, um, professionals right. and those six people really um uh guide the you know help us help us allocate our resources in terms of the things that we should be focused on to enable their businesses which will then allow us to enable the entire business yeah. and so he's on the he's an emerging leader he's on the steering committee uh our dallas fort worth investment sales team was our top transaction team uh, of the year last year and then doug Banerjee was our top producer last year yep uh, doug and boyan and the whole crew they're great guys. And I, they, we have a really, we have an awesome culture in that office. And yeah. between those two offices, between Dallas and Fort Worth, I mean, we have, they're super high quality guys and girls. They really have, they really get along with each other. They're really good friends. And, um, and it's been amazing to see the growth of, of those, of those folks. Yeah, no, they've done an incredible job. I remember when they first came to our office and they're like, we're working with this new company. It's called Grace Deal, blah, blah, blah. I was like, who the hell's Grace Deal? Well, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they, look, they were earnest and honest. I mean, that's what I would say. You know, the same thing I said about the fella in uh, North Carolina is what I would say about that group. I mean, there's a, 
you know, there's a pay it uh, forward um, mentality here yeah. where, you know, you can get anyone on the phone anywhere in the country and that person's going to take, take your call. They're going to talk to you and they're going to try to help you. Yep. You know, that's, that's, that's how we, you know, that's how we do it. Yep. I'm going to pivot a little bit to technology. You believed in technology, obviously, probably a non-technical guy, meaning you're not building the software, the, the cloud software that, that your business runs off of. How did you um, build everything that you needed to run the business that you wanted? Did you outsource or did you hire like uh, software engineers internally to build what you needed built? So uh, we have them now, but at the time we simply picked off the shelf. And I think with where the market is headed and has been headed, you know, I don't think it's smart to necessarily build something for, from scratch. Right. If you're, unless you're a technology company, unless you're trying to build a, build an enterprise solution that you can, you can sell as a, you know, as a service potentially, you know, right. subscribe, sell as a service. So, so I don't, I don't think that that's, that, that's not where we were. We, we, we simply went around and said, okay, like, you know, what, what is, um, what's available to us and let's, let's buy off the shelf. And so we bought off the shelf and we, and we kind of put that ecosystem together. Now we are now at a different stage today where, you know, we, we have, we're, we're on the Salesforce platform. We're in the process of migrating to lightning. We are, you know, developing, um, the platform and my goal is to, you know, use machine learning and AI, uh, to, to get to automation, you know, so that we can, we can find efficiency through automation, which I think most businesses throughout the country are trying to do, yep. or world, I should say. Um, uh, so I, I would say at the time when we launched, um, we, we put it together and it was fine. Uh, today, we're really looking to help us move forward, right? I, I think yeah. at the time, it was a, it was a convenience measure. How do we, how do we conveniently uh, store and, and access data? Uh, and today, it's how do we take that data, use it so that while we're sleeping, it's you know, generating return for us. Yep. We're doing the same stuff. I mean, it's, I think it's a table stakes to be around in 10 years. Yeah, exactly. How do you think technology will impact the industry that the brokerage industry, the capital markets industry, like 10 years from now, how do you, what do you see the biggest impacts being? You know, it's a good question. I think the market continues to get flat. You know, the, you know, I think, you know, your podcast as an example, you know, some, someone in, in Kansas city may listen to your podcast, get some ideas from what you guys are doing and what you're finding success in, and then begin implementing that in Kansas city. And as information is shared and so readily available, uh, I, I think the markets will continue to flatten out, um, and become more and more efficient. So I, I think that as a service, I, I do believe, you know, real estate's antiquated, and people want someone in the middle of the transaction because there's still, you know, there's still a, a personal aspect to it. Um, it, is, it is certainly still a relationship business. Um, but I do think that I think there's going to be fee compression. I think there's going to be fee compression uh, all, all across the board. I, you know, I think you're seeing it in the money management business. Fees have compressed year over year. Uh, promotes have compressed year over year because there's more people doing it and, and they're doing it smarter every year. So I think for, as a whole, um, I think the broker business model, I think you're going to see continued compression. And then furthermore, you know, on a service provider basis, I think there's going to be compression. So, you know, the goal being, how do you grow through and past compression? Um, and I think we do it by, by creating a smarter, a smarter platform that could do more with less. And then furthermore, delivering solutions in a segment of the marketplace where, where there, there's a requirement for higher level sophistication. So, you know, we're focused on some niche national businesses. So out of our, you know, between Dallas and Fort Worth as an example, we cover the central U.S. We, we do a fair amount of affordable housing transactions, which are transactions that are predominantly financed with tax credits. It's not rocket science. Um, at least we don't think it is because it's what we do. And we do a tremendous amount of volume throughout the United States. But the normal real estate person or normal finance person, it might as well be Mandarin. And so, you know, we're looking to continue to provide solutions in, that, in spaces like that where, where there's, you know, a higher level of sophistication required to deliver the solution. What does your job consist of now? I'm assuming you do not, uh, you're not a traditional broker anymore. So I, I, I am still, it depends. You know? <laughs> I think it depends. You kind of um, do a little bit of everything too? 
I do a little bit of everything too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I enjoy, I enjoy cultivating relationships. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy counseling our clients. So just because I'm not like showing a property, um, doesn't mean I'm not involved in the dialogue around the strategy. Right. And then I'm, I enjoy, you know, I do enjoy the hand to hand combat of a negotiation. So cultivating and creating a market and then, you know, uh, driving, driving the, the marketplace. I enjoy whether it's, you know, running a, you know, a, a best and final process for a senior loan or structured finance engagement or helping something get structured or, or, you know, running an investment sale. Like I, I like the, like the last bit of it. I like the front and the end of it, if that makes sense. Yep. You know, the, the, the attainment of the business and then just like the, the maximizing of deal terms. I enjoy both ends of that. So I, I would say I do, I do do some of that caretake the platform. Um, and you know, I would say that's what I do for Grace Deal primarily. I give a little more color on what caretaking the platform means. Um, you know, it's setting the strategic vision, yep. driving our professionals to perform at the highest level and delivering them, uh, the resources that they need, uh, in order to do so, you know, and, and I, and a, a good bit of that's, you know, HR and, you know, uh, recruitment and retention of our employees and talent pool. Um, and then, you know, looking to align incentives appropriately so that people are performing at their highest level. Yep. Do you have a favorite interview question? I ask people, I, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I ask people, uh, if, if they know anyone that doesn't like them, like if I would say like, do you know anyone that, that doesn't like you? Yep. And they would say yes or no. Most of them would say yes. I'd be like, okay, what do they say about you? Like what, what if they don't like you, what, what would they say? Yep. I love it. And you know, I like to hear them. I mean, tell me, you know, tell me the truth. And some of them will bullshit you and kind of give you, you know, oh, they say I work too hard. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm you making know, too much oh, money. I've got, you know, I've got, I've, I've got attention to detail and, you know, sometimes that can, you know, that can slow me down. I don't know. So, you know, I just kind of, I want to listen to their answer. Yep. Um, you know, and then I, depending on how much, you know, how much time they've had in the business, you know, I may ask them, help me back in, you know, I'll point out my window or, I'll say, look out your window and look at the piece of dirt across the street. Like, how would you determine the highest, best value of the asset? And I just want to, I want them to walk me through it. You know, you'd be surprised, you know, just because someone's been in the business for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, it does not mean that they have experience. It, it just, it could mean that they've been the business, they've been doing the same thing for 20 years, meaning the same thing every year for 20 years. There's, there's been like very little technical growth. And, and I've seen that, which is actually rather bizarre where you have someone who's been in the business forever, but can't, can't underwrite a deal can't get behind the spreadsheet to save, save their lives, do not understand the financial concepts. Most transaction brokers, I would actually tell you, they don't understand capital markets. A hundred percent. And we find that out very regularly. It's weird. So we, we teach our folks that. So that's like a prerequisite. We have a Graystool University where we have this massive library of resources. Uh, we videoed, we've got tons of content that we videoed. And, and we have a curriculum that we put together. And when someone joins us, whether they're, um, experienced or inexperienced, we, we point them to the resource library and, and, you know, they, we, we've been able to take folks that have been like, again, they've been in business, you know, five years who have no conceptual understanding of capital markets and teach it to them and teach them how to how a syndicator makes their money and how, you know, how a REIT makes their business decisions and why, and how a fund does it. And by, by understanding, you know, how the prospective client makes their decisions, you can deliver them, um, you can deliver them solutions that, that speak to them rather than delivering them a solution that doesn't speak to them. Do you have an in-house team that, that builds your content for you? It's, it's all the professionals. Yeah. So if I see or hear someone do something really well, yeah. then I will ask our transaction coordinator to get with them and record it. Yep. I love that. I'm actually making that note. Is there somebody or maybe it's a couple people or somebody that if you just look back on your career, you, it just jumps right to the front of the line of somebody that's really helped you kind of went out of their way to, to get you on your way. So we had two, I would say two clients that, that, uh, that <clears throat> when I first formed this business, um, did, uh, there was a, there's a group called BBS. It was a private capital group. They own a small amount of assets between Washington and Maryland. Uh, they were our first client. They listed a, I don't know, a, a $9 million investment sale with us. Um, and they, they were a supportive of our business, irrespective. They, they knew we were no longer with the old place. They recognized what they were signing up for. And, and they showed up and said, we have confidence in you. We, we want to we do this with you. 
there's another gentleman, his name is Josh Bernstein, runs a company called Bernstein Management. Um, he doesn't sell much. He's got a vast portfolio. I, I would venture to say it's in the billion and a half dollar range in this marketplace. He, um, he, uh, he bought a port, he bought a, a pool of notes in the recession and there were a few assets in that pool that he didn't want to hold on to. And he and his, uh, and his partner, who's his president called me and my team in and said, Hey, you know, we want you to take a look at this for us. Um, we will, we will, uh, you give us a fair proposal and you know, the business is yours. And, and that was a vote of confidence and support. And especially in this market where, you know, he has, he's very well regarded. I mean, nationally very well, very well regarded as well. Uh, it was, you know, I would say those two guys in the beginning stand out to me because, you know, they, you know, within the first few months of, you know, forming the enterprise, they, they were here to support us. I love it. All right. I have two more questions and then we'll wrap this. I think I started, I was never a commercial broker, but when I started my company, I was a, a leasing agent at TCU, but I always go back to the days of like, just knowing what it's like to be in the middle and knowing, you know, what a buyer and a seller are thinking. And so you've obviously been in a lot of transactions, your company's in them all day, every day. Are there certain things that pop out at you at like what make the best real estate investors? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, so I think, I think certain people have, have the nose. So by that, I mean, they're intuitive investors and their intuition, uh, irrespective of their sophistication, right. um, makes it. And, and they tend to be, I would say that for the most part, they tend to be basis investors. Mm-hmm. So they look at basis relative to replacement costs. Um, and, and that's how they make, I think that's how they generally make their decisions. Um, then I would say you have another pool of folks that I would call them, they're engineers, they're financial engineers. Uh, they, they know how to take a transaction and, and engineer it to optimize its performance. And, right. and so, you know, they, they tend to attain success that way. You have another pool of folks that they're, you know, I would say they're, they're, they're poor operators, but they're, they're good buyers. Yep. Um, and, and they're, and they're good at raising capital. And so they're, they, they're momentum players where they'll drive the marketplace. They'll buy, buy, buy. They don't really make money on operations and then they transact and sell. Yep. And, and I would say that those, those folks do really, really well um, when the market's inclining and, and they do really, really bad in a decline. Right. Um, but, but if you're, you know, as a momentum player in any industry, you, you just, if you hit the market right, you can win. It's like being a condo converter or a condo developer. If you yep. hit the market right, you can win big. And if you don't, you can lose big. Um, so there's, I mean, there are different like types of investors out there. And those are, I would say three types of kind of private ish investors. Um, and of course you have the big institutions that, you know, have gobs of data, you know, are ultra sophisticated, you know, and, and can slice and dice, you know, in a minute, but they're just, you know, but they're professional investors. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying, um, I, I clearly as an entrepreneur, uh, I, I relate to, you know, probably the, the other three more than I do the institutional investor. Right. Um, but, but I would say all of them, you know, are very, can be very smart and successful, you know, within the right, um, paradigm of circumstances. Yep. Okay. My second question is since you're in the middle uh, very often, what are some of the biggest deal breakers? Why do things fall apart? People get too greedy people can't close on time like what are reasons that things fall apart i think uh, uh holistically it's a mismanagement of um expectations yeah uh i think that if it, it, as a transaction professional if you're in the middle of a transaction your job is to deliver uh deliver the truth uh but but deliver it with, deliver it within the context of expectation management and so if, if you're simply uh passing paper back and forth you, you're no better than email and, and, and you're like a, like a pigeon flying messages. And I say to the, I say to the guys and girls here, I said, I'm like, don't be email. You know, if you're going to take, if you're going to take the responsibility of managing a, a transaction, um, cultivating, curating a marketplace, also take the responsibility of, of educating your client and then delivering transparency to the other side. So that way, you know, you can get both parties to a win, you know, a, a win is one in which, you know, you optimize the transaction for your client, but then also, uh, you know, the other side feels like they're winning because they're attaining, you know, attaining the, the right to do it, whether it's, you know, the, the lender attaining the right to provide the senior loan capital or a buyer attaining the right to acquire the asset. 
you know, just because they pay the most or offer the least, the lowest cost of capital doesn't mean they've lost. They've got to feel like they've won. And, and creating a, an environment where both parties feel a win um, is, is, I think, how you keep them together. And if, if you're simply passing messages back and forth, it's an easy way to ruin a deal. And, uh, you know, in my younger years, I, I was, I, I, I'll be candid, I, I was, you know, I, was, I didn't have the strength uh, to always tell someone the truth that they're being a, you know, they're like a dumbass or they're being crazy or, or they're being, you know, like, uh-huh. like you're, you're being fucking unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, w- I was unreasonable. I was on, you know, I was, I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the strength to deliver that message all the time. Yep. Um, you know, once you, once you, uh, overcome, um, I would say, you know, once a, once a professional, you know, gets past that hurdle and it's usually, you know, first hurdle is financial. Then the second hurdle is really emotional and mental. Um, once you overcome that hurdle and you've, you are detached from the outcome, uh, meaning the financial outcome. I, I believe you can be a, you know, rather than being a salesperson, um, you know, you, you become a counselor uh, to, to your, to your clients. I mean, I, I get calls all the time from, you know, friends and clients and colleagues asking for my opinion. And these are folks that, you know, are, you know, are 30 to 40 years older than me, yeah. you know, and they're calling to ask me my opinion on business ethics, you know, as an example, yeah. or, uh, or deal matters or deal experience. And I, I offer it to them because we're friends and, and that's, I think that's where you want to be. If you, if you can get there in our business, then, then I think you have a surviving business. You, you have a practice. Yeah. I freaking love it. Um, all right. One more question, but this one's quick. If you had to bet on one asset type for the next five years, which asset could, would you bet on right now? Data centers. Love it. Yeah. Do you all have a data center practice? Your, uh, we we are so I, I I am I also have a direct investment platform that that does not do what Grayscale does as a real estate uh, transaction broker. It would be it would be uh, suicide for me to you know invest in assets to that 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 you know for example you guys are interested in buying right. because then I'd be competing with you. So we don't do that. But um, but as a direct investor, I can do things that we don't do. And one of the things that we're involved in, I've got a piece of dirt in northern virginia which is the data center capital of the world um that that i uh that's a 90 acre parcel that uh that will accommodate a half a billion dollar data center uh or three three building data center project it's in an opportunity zone it's very exciting you know whether i actually build it or i venture it or i simply sell the land to amazon or somebody like that uh, the jedi contract is coming out which is the big government contract that they're getting ready to award it and that'll really accelerate the growth of the data center space in this region. Um, I, I think there's just going to be continuous and tremendous opportunity in that space. I was talking to somebody in the business the other day that just said like, even the biggest companies, Microsoft, Google, uh, Amazon, you name it, they still can't forecast their data needs more than about six months out. And if they say something, they're just totally fudging because it's, it's growing so quickly that it's almost, I mean, you just can't really forecast it. Paper is extinct, man. Paper is extinct. The entire entire government is moving to paperless. Yep. Uh, all industry is moving to is moved or is moving to paperless. And um, and you know this podcast that we're doing, you know, we used to have to buy a CD to listen to something like this. Before that was a tape, and before that was a was a track, and before that was a vinyl. Yeah. And today it's just a it's just a, a small speck of you know of of data. Uh, in, a, in, a, in the big scheme of this, you know, giga giga world, if you will, this, the gig economy, and so I think that's your 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 biggest growth sector now, multifamily residential, still the darling of of, of commercial real estate, industrial, uh, w- which has taken the place of retail, um, is is hot and he- heavy, and I think that'll continue. Um, I think you'll see retail get repurposed into other uses uh, with a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, experiential stuff, like you know, you're, you're seeing the malls convert their boxes into axe throwing facilities and and uh, and gyms for children and, and things like that. Yep. Uh, so that 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 world is still changing, and I think the malls will actually turn into last mile uh, distribution as well. Um, offices, you know, you're seeing the office convert as well. You're seeing some offices convert to resi, some offices convert uh, to data center use. Uh, so. I think you're going to see changing use um, based on how the 
you know, how we are utilizing the internet to receive services uh, and, and resources. And, and that'll, that'll continue to, to change the way, you know, real estate is used in functions. Yeah. I think the, the, there's, it's not a lack of supply. It's a lack of how we're using it. There's a ton of wasted space that's been built in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting, but you know, my, my top bet is, you know, the, the data center space. Yep. I love it. So your long data center, short post-it notes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I still, but you know, what's funny is I still use a notepad. I, oh, I'm, I'm still I'm paper here writing when, notes when, as we speak. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't think it'll go away. Um, I'm still a paper guy. I'd love to read the newspaper. Like, I, I read the newspaper like an old man. Yeah. Um, I, and I enjoy it. I read it. I read. You know, I read. I read probably like six to six to seven newspapers over the weekend, and it, it's it's something I enjoy doing. Is that where you get a lot of your? like national coverage from newspapers or is there anything in particular you read religiously? Oh yeah. I mean, I read, I read the financial times. I read the uh, wall street journal occasionally the post and the New York times. Um, I read pitch book on my email. I, I get all the industry regs via email. I listen to podcasts. Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm a consumer of data. I mean, I wake up in the morning at five 30, I work out, I either read the newspaper on my bike or I read, you know, read one of these, you know, a series of industry rags or listen to a podcast, um, great podcast, Capital Allocators, I recommend if you're familiar with it. Um, I think it's, I think he's got Ted Sadie's bringing some of the smartest guys on the street uh, on that podcast. Um, And so I, I I don't know, I I have a, I don't, I consume data 24 seven. I think that's my reaction. You're not learning. You're you're fading away into the abyss pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean it's it's a um, you know to me I, I want to be a good cocktail party guest. Yeah. And so <laughs> by, being, by you know like by by having a, a vague understanding of a lot of different things, I, I'm fairly conversational. That's going to be the title of this podcast episode: the the good cocktail party guest. That's all, you know, in life, if you can be a cocktail party guest, you always get invited back. <laughs> all right, dude. Well, you're fascinating. You too, man. I, I, like I said, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. Uh, it's exciting what you're doing. I think you're delivering, um, you're delivering an urban environment in, in, in Texas, which, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's the land of, it's the land of the highway and the pickup truck. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I think, it's needed and wanted, right? Young people and old people alike want to walk out of their place and walk down the street and eat and yep. not have to sit and, you know, 45 minutes in traffic to go to an Applebee's or whatever. So I think that, uh, I think you're doing big things. And I, and I think the, all the fundamentals and the trends all throughout the United States, uh, are in your favor. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, we're, we're pumped to be in Texas and I mean, I've got a million ideas for how to make Texas better, but the good part is the tailwinds that are back. I don't have to do a whole lot. Things just kind of keep happening here, so it's well, good. One thing I would tell you is I, I do read – the Wall Street Journal sends out a daily roundup, and there's like a – I don't know if you get – if you, you subscribe to it, but there's a there's like a slew of charts it sends out in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the charts that, that stood out to me from – it was yesterday, the day before yesterday. And, and I mean, when I mean a slew, it's like 70 charts, and there's yeah. a lot of interesting – uh, data that comes out of those charts, but it was comparing, um, national, um, national, uh, job growth and, and Texas, uh, Texas, uh, uh, beat every state in the nation. And so Texas was leading the, the entire country in terms of job growth. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I think Texas is great. Look, good, good tax policy, uh, favorable tax policy, uh, favorable, you know, favorable, you know, favorable fundamentals towards, you know, allowing people the right to do basically whatever they want. Yep. Um, I think, and then, and then, and then favorable weather. I think if you look at the places that are growing, you know, Florida, Tennessee, Nevada, Colorado, uh, Texas, Colorado, um, you know, they, uh, the, the, the Colorado has a little bit less favorable tax treatment, but, yeah. but it has high quality of life. Uh, I think, uh, and allows folks to do what they want with themselves. I think those are the places that people want to be. And you look at the Northeast, and, and, um, and you look at parts of, you know, uh, the West California. coast, you know, people are fleeing because of high cost of living. And, um, you know, there's a, there's, you know, the government, you know, and I don't smoke a jewel, but you know, in San Francisco, you can't, you can't go buy a jewel, you know, like <laughs> you, you can't keep these things from people. They're going to, you know, they're going to leave. 
You can't buy a jewel, but people are taking shits all over the street in San Francisco. You can't walk it's out terrible, the front man. door without it's walking terrible. into somebody's shit. I know. I know that's all. Yeah. No, it's, it's turning. I mean, it's turning quick. And city council won't allow for any new housing, so housing continues to skyrocket, and, and so do the amount of shits that people are taking on the sidewalk. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. We've got to find a solution, but... Anyway, it's, it was nice catching up with you. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks, sorry. Bye. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.